Welcome to Women of the Wild, where education and opportunities are key, and friendships are made to last a lifetime. You think we got him? You think we got him? We got him. All right, Skylar, what do we got here? We have a nice looking rip off. Welcome back to season two women of the wild podcast. We would like to first start off by thanking our title sponsors for the 2024 year. Atlantic Coral Enterprise, one of the largest import dealers in the world with excellent quality for hides, skulls, shells, and amazing gifts for friends and family or even your household. You can find them at AtlanticCoralEnterprise.com. RM Custom Calls, multiple world championships from Main Street to Live Duck. American-made, veteran-owned, when you want to win on the stage or in the blind, we have you covered. Small shop, big sound. You can find them at rmcustomcall.com or on Instagram. We also have Rhino Land Safaris, providing exceptional quality with unmatched hospitality and cuisine, offering African safaris, a destination hunt for the avid rifle or bow hunter with some of the best trophy management South Africa has to offer. You can find them at rhinoland.co.za or on Facebook, Instagram. Hey everyone, Andy Lehman here from ACC Crappie Sticks. Just want to let you know about our crappie baits and jig heads. We have a wide selection of the hottest colors and big eye crappie jig heads in the most popular colors and sizes. Check them all out at acccrappiesticks.com. Thank you. And now for today's episode, we hope you enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Women of the Wild. We are here today with one of our big sponsors, Wicked 7 Outdoors. Um, we've done a couple of events with him and wanted to dip into his guide service a little bit and, and just talk about guiding and some of the tips and tricks that go along with hunting. Wicked 7 Outdoors. How are you? Well, it's uh, it'd be a tad bit chilly in Texas this week. I don't want to hear it. It's snowing here. Oh, well, you know. I don't snow much got, down here. We got you beat in Michigan. Oh, well, I'm sure. <laughs> land of the land of frostbite and moose or something like that. I wouldn't go with moose, but we can call it that. It. We gotta go ice fishing sometime, though. Yes, we've already done duck well, hunting. We'll have to add the yep. ice fishing. Yep, cross that one All off right. the old bucket list. Yes. So we are here today. We'll talk a little bit about um, your guide service. So first of all, will you tell our listeners what it is that you guide down in Texas? Yeah. My name's Austin. I guide Audad, Barberry Sheep, kind of the Chinati mountain range right on the border of Mexico here in Texas. They've always been a fascination of mine ever since the first time I've seen one. 
And so it just kind of seemed fitting to fall into that and find a piece of land that had a bunch of them. Yeah, and we brought a group of girls down in March with you, or Hannah. We've had her on a previous episode, but we had Hannah on where she actually harvested a beautiful ram up at, what, 3,900 feet? Yeah, right at, it was like 3,980 is where her ram was. Yeah, so at eight weeks pregnant, she's up climbing this mountain with a group of girls and got on a spectacular shot, dropped him right there in his tracks. And we've talked about that a little bit. But you you take quite a bit of people out every year. I think you hit like that 25 to 30 mark with your clients. Yeah, last year um, we did 30, 30 successful on 33 hunts. Um, this year, due to some cancellations and stuff, I'm, I bet I won't be much over 20 rams this year. Now, when you say 33 to 36, you're still at 36 with shot opportunity. You're still 100% on shot opportunity with your hunts? Yeah. Um, on those 33 hunts, everybody got to pull the trigger. Unfortunately, not everybody connected or, you know, some people just didn't have, uh, didn't have a minute to go another two or three days out there. So they, they kind of folded the lawn chairs up and went home. Yeah. I mean, it's not an easy hunt. It's very physically tasking. So, I mean, as someone who's witnessed it firsthand, it's definitely something that if you're not mentally and physically prepared for it, you're put in a situation where you might not be able to cut it or tap or something like that, or, just the frustration within yourself. I feel like that's probably the biggest struggle all clients have. And correct me if I'm wrong, but probably one of the bigger struggles is the fact that they get frustrated with themselves for not being able to keep up. Cause I've seen you in those mountains. You're like a damn mountain goat, just jumping from those rocks. And I can see the frustration in people like that maybe physically aren't fit to do it. And I know when we brought our girls down, you had made the comment to one of the girls, like, what do I got to do to prepare myself for this? And you straight up told them like, put a wet sock in your mouth and run 10 miles on a treadmill and you might be ready. And that was not an exaggeration. No, it's, I don't know that I would guess aside from going to like Alaska to the Brooks range or going to like the Floridian mountains over New Mexico, you're not going to find a much more rugged place than where I hunt. It's just, it's so unforgiving it's rough it's there's nothing solid that you're standing on everything out there wants to stick you bite you poke you and ultimately try to kill you i mean if you're not paying attention to what you're doing one wrong slip off the side of that mountain and uh we're hitting the sos button and getting you uh getting you a body bag to come home in um it's no joke um people think you know like oh it can't be that hard you know these they're not really tall mountains well no, they're not. They're not the tallest mountains. Our tallest peak in Texas is, I forget, it's Guadalupe Peak. It's it's up there. It's 12 or 13, maybe 14,000 feet. But they're, they're slick, rocked mountains. There's no, there's no way about it. I used to, like, call them mesas, which they are. They are mesas. But when you're going from 2,500 feet to 2,800 feet, all the way up to 3,900 to 4,000 feet. And it's not like it's a slow, gradual climb. You don't have a hiking trail. We're not on side-by-sides. You can't drive the truck through most of the place. It's You're on foot from the time we leave camp till the time we come back to camp. There's no – if you're looking for the gravy train type of hunt, I can point you in a direction because this one, admit. Yeah, no, I mean, when our girls were down there, we were 
we were putting those girls on cheap. And I mean, it's when you say 25 to 28, what people aren't realizing is that's straight up with rocks slipping out from under your feet. And it's not an easy task at all. So like you said, it's not a gravy train hunt at all. You're going to work for it and you're work hard. But I feel like that's the self earning within all of it is how hard you've worked, how far you came. I know my girls, when we were down there in, in March had made that comment of like getting up on the top of five and looking back and seeing, seeing how far you've come. I mean, the view is spectacular, but like when you realize how far you came, how hard you worked to get there and just the blood, sweat and tears that you put into it makes it all just that much more worth it. Oh, for sure. There's nothing. It still gets me every time I climb to the top of some of them. It's like, holy crap, we made it up here. You get guys that look at it and they're like, oh, man, we can make it up there in 30 minutes. Like, have at it. Good luck. Um, I'll see you at the top whenever I get up there. But it takes me hour to an hour and a half. And that's that's moving at a pretty good pace. It's not like I'm Usain Bolt running up the side of them things, but I'll go 150, 200 yards up, stop five minutes, catch my breath, drink water, and then go another 150, 200 yards. And by the second push, most of these guys are like, is there somewhere else we can go? And it's, no, this is, this is what you signed up for. This is what I told you it was. And uh, a lot of them, the, the hydration thing that has been the thorn in everybody's side out there uh, I had a group of guys I'm not going to say when because it'll give it away I had a group of guys come out and they just they didn't want to listen to my advice on how much water this it was towards the end of summer I'll put it to you that way towards the end of summer down there it's a hundred and it's a hundred to 110 degrees every day there's no shade. There's no trees. It's, you know, the only thing you've got to hide under is a rock that's been baking in the sun for six hours. So when I tell people, you know, bring 10 to 15 bottles of water, they look at me like I'm nuts and they tell me, oh, I don't want to take that much water because it's heavy. Hey, yeah, it's heavy, but you need it. And, you know, if they want to take four bottles of water, typically I take 10 to 15 bottles. And usually by the end of the day, we're down to the last two or three bottles by the time we get to camp because they didn't pack enough. Yeah. I mean, I, and I can see that struggle too, right? You're going to go up this mountain, you know how feeding it is to put that much weight in your pack. But like you said, it is something you need. And I think that that's like the Achilles heel to a hunter in those mountains is you try to pack as light as possible, but by packing light as possible, you could essentially be leaving the necessities at home. When I say at home, I mean, camp, and it's like to carry nine bottles of water in your pack, it's heavy. And mm -hmm. that's something like you're aware of that, carrying that out for your clients. So, yeah, I mean, any of those hunts where it's hot, where there's no shade, like you said, you're you're like a damn ant under a magnifying glass out in those mountains. It's just hot. It's brutal. It's crazy to me that those sheep thrive in conditions like that or any animal can thrive in conditions that hot. Maybe that's just me speaking as a Michigander, but. It's just, I don't think most people know how to handle that type of heat under those circumstances, under that physical exhaustion, and it's it's tasking to say the least. Absolutely, and by day three of being out there, you know, you're in prolonged exposure. We're out there for anywhere between 10 and 12 hours a day, 
chasing sheep. You don't realize how much water your body's chewing up just walking on the flat ground, you know, walking through the big canyon in between four and five. It may not seem difficult, but when the sun's just baking in that canyon and there's minimal breeze through there, it's it's like a convection oven. It just the heat waves just keep coming. You get tired, you get more tired, and eventually you start making mistakes, and those mistakes can ultimately end your hunt in those mountains. Well, and your life. I mean, you make the wrong mistake, wrong step. I I would love to circle back to something that you had said though about just not listening. Because I know that in the past you've done these videos of like tips from a guide. So I know one of the biggest things as as a guide myself that one of the things is like the don't guide your guide. But what are some of the tips and tricks that you could give to your clients that are looking to do some sort of trophy hunt, whether it's barberry sheep, whether it's bighorn, but some sort of desert mountain hunt. What are some of the tips and tricks that you would share as a guide? As a guide... We do this for a living. This is our bread and butter. I've spent more time staring at sheep than most people have ever seen sheep. If I make a call, it's because I know what these sheep are going to do 90% of the time. And I know that sounds arrogant and you can call it whatever you want to. But last season I was out from August until, well, until your guys' hunt in March, almost every week. I've spent more hours behind binoculars and a spotting scope than most people will spend in 10 years of hunting. When I make the call of like, these sheep are going here, we need to get there. It's probably because that's exactly what they're going to do. So, I mean, that, that falls right in line with don't guide your guide. I have a lot of clients that are like, oh man, we need to go do this. Oh, well, Hey, you know what? It's your hunt and it's day two. Throw it at the cabinet and see if it sticks. If it doesn't work, we're going to go back to my plan. You know, I'm not, I'm not one of those guides where it's my way or the highway all the time, but there are certain safety feet not features, but there are certain safety aspects that if I say, hey, we're not going that way, we're not going that way. That simple bullheadedness of not listening out there will get you killed. You can't see 10 feet in front of you in the dark in those mountains. <laughs> I've tried. You can't. There's 30, 30 and 40 foot cliffs that you won't know they're there until you're standing on the edge of them. and It's a good chance you're falling off of it. Don't guide your guides the biggest one. If, if I make a safety call, it's for damn good reason, because it's not just your life. It's mine as well. And I got two kids to come home to. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's one thing I think in any situation, guides in general, they, they get that of those clients that think that they know better. But in all reality, I mean, you're out there 30 so times a year on a sheep hunt, but you're also going out there scouting your sheep. You're out there sometimes just for the hell of it. I know that last season you had a couple of those where you just, you were in between hunts and you're like, I just miss the mountains going back. And you're out there, you're out there, you know, learning those mountains, you're learning the trail. I don't want to say trails because there isn't a trail, but you're out there learning where they're at and where they're going to go following that like circulation, that pattern that they kind of come on. And that's a, I mean, that's a whole nother topic of patterning animals. It's always been, one of those things that some say you can, some say you can't, but what is your opinion on that with patterning animals? Everything's got a pattern. We have a pattern. Birds have a pattern. I mean, you guide waterfowl and turkeys, and you do a damn good job at it. You know your turkeys are moving through a certain spot every, you know, it may be every day, it may be every couple days. You know whenever 
the weather starts changing, them geese are going to come to this field, to that field, or to that field. Sheep are no different. Whitetail are no different. Mule deer, elk, pronghorn, bighorn sheep, axis fallow, black buck, they've all got a pattern. And I think people are crazy to think that animals just wander willy-nilly about. There's a huge migration of elk. Pick any spot in western United States. Those elk are doing a big lap. Some of them might be two or three days. Some of them might be 10, 15 days. Some of them might be 20 to 30 days. But if an animal, if a species stays in one spot and just eats all day like cattle, they're going to run out of stuff to eat. These animals are, they're self-aware enough that they're not going to eat themselves out of house and home. They're going to eat here for a day. Then they're going to move over here and eat for a day. And then they're going to move around over here to eat for a day. They've all got to come to water at some point. Desert animals are a little bit different. They get a lot of their water from their diet, from their cat, you know, the odd They eat cactus, um, greasewood, all kinds of different stuff that produces a lot of water. So you know that every few days they're going to come by and hit some spot somewhere. It's just knowing and spending enough time in the field to recognize that pattern. The sheep down there, they've got an eight-day pattern. They come onto property. They go five, four, three, two, one, off property. Two or three days later, they'll come back the backside. And by about the eighth day, they're coming back around five. Everything's got a pattern. Yeah, so I've talked about that on previous podcasts, not on Women of the Wild, but other podcasts that I've been on with my guide service. And with my, like, like you said, with my turkeys especially, I can almost time them within a 10 minute, like my clients, when they come out, I've been able to tell them within 10 minutes of when they're going to shoot their bird. And I have been on, on the nose with it every time. And I, like, I agree with that. The pattern, every animal has it, whether they're going to eat a field out like geese here, they'll eat an entire field out before they'll move on. And and then they'll give it time to be, you know, tilled back up or replanted before they'll come back to it. But if you know an animal and you can get inside their head, like you said, they need water, they need food, They need safety. So if you already are thinking like them and you can have that in your mindset of where's their safety, where's their food, where's their water source, you're going to be able to pattern that animal. And I I agree with you. I think it's absolutely nuts for people to say that an animal doesn't have a pattern because every species out there has one. It's, It's something that's been very controversial, talked about whether they do or don't. And they might switch their pattern but they still have one and they probably have a pattern within that pattern as like, you know, any type of deterrent or a predator comes in the area, it might switch that pattern to a different circulation, but they're still going to have, and they're going to come back to that original one at some point in time. Oh, for sure. You see it all the time with the sheep. We'll go in there. We'll shoot at a group of sheep. Hopefully fingers crossed client hits it. No big deal. In and out. It's a great hunt, right? If you miss those sheep come out, they leave. By about the time my next round of clients come in, I'm seeing the same group of sheep roll back through. So there is some pressure, you know, pressure will drive animals out. But if you leave it alone long enough, they'll be right back. Yes, absolutely. So as a second year sponsor with Women of the Wild, we're going to switch gears a little bit here before we go to commercial break. But as a second year sponsor with Women of the Wild, I know that you have been a big supporter with um, females in the outdoors. You have a daughter. What is it that drives you for having that passion for assisting with getting women in the outdoors and sponsoring Women of the Wild? Well, I'll, I'll take a page out of your book. 
You take a man hunting for the first time, you've taken a man hunting. You take a woman hunting, you've taken the whole family. She is going to get the entire family involved in some way, some aspect of it. Whether it's going and sitting w- with the mom in the blind, whether it's you know helping drag her deer out, skinning, caping, quartering, processing. You take women out, the whole family is going to get involved in some aspect. Um, a really good example of that is our friend Hannah. Justin didn't used to hunt. Now he, you know, he's becoming quite the outdoorsman. And that's testament to that saying that you have. So that's, that's a lot of it. I mean, I grew up in the, in the hunting, not in the hunting industry, but ever since I could follow my dad, my grandpa through the woods, chasing rabbits behind dogs. Like I've been in the woods. That's, it's just part of my life. It's in my blood. I don't know. I don't know what to do with myself if I'm not hunting. There's a lot of things that I know how to do, but hunting is just such a major part of it. But yeah, I mean, getting women out there, getting, you know, watching, we took, this one's going to get me semi-emotional here. We took our mutual buddy, Stevie. He contacted me uh, two years ago and said, Hey, I want to bring my daughters out. And, you know, one of them wants to shoot a black buck and they both want to shoot an odd dad. Watching his, she was four at the time, watching her shoot that black buck and getting so excited about it. I mean, how could you not want to get more kids, girls, women, boys, whatever, how could you not want to do more of that? And I've said it before, if I could take kids hunting for free for the rest of my life, I would. It's no secret that hunting license sales is on the decline, but hopefully with the resurgence of getting more women and kids out there, that's going to grow back, I pray, before too much longer. It's a revolving door. Hunting license sales goes up, it goes down, goes up, goes down. So it just... I want to see more people get out there. And I think the best start is teaching kids a good foundation on it. Absolutely. Now, was that, you said Stevie, was that Ava that he took out? Yeah, Ava and Zoe both came out. Did they? I remember him posting about that and talking about it and just how excited they were and everything. So, but they've came out to the mountains as well. Not the kids, but Stevie's been out to the mountains with you before, correct? Yeah. uh, Stevie, Teddy, Ted Naster, and Chance from Cinco Canyon, they all came out. They had a good time. It was kind of a rough hunt, but they all, all three of them enjoyed their time out there. But like, it doesn't end like getting family out in the outdoors and like these groups coming out together, that camaraderie that's built, whether it's blood by family or, you know, a couple of buddies, a couple of girls, like the camaraderie, the, the family that's created it when you're put in those hardships and situations of like, I guess hardships isn't the right word, but when you're put putting yourself to the test and you're doing it with a group of people, whether it's family, whether it's friends, whatever it may be, that's kind of got its own different type of camaraderie to it in itself. And that's kind of why I brought that up of like, he came up, came out and did the black buck and everything with Zoe and Ava, but then also came out with Chance and Teddy that it, it's just kind of neat to see the interaction of the same people with different people and having that type of um, interaction with them. Oh, for sure. And you take, I don't know, it's, it's more work. It's harder work to take a group of people out, but the morale in a group of two or three, you know, not just guys, a group of two or a group of two or three, the morale is so much higher, right? Cause they're just pushing each other, not negatively, but they're just pushing each other to like, Hey man, we're almost there to the top or 
hey, girl, let's, we're almost there. Like with your girls, you know, your girls were great at like building each other up on their way up to the top. I think if it would have, not necessarily that if it would have just been one, it would have been, you know, wouldn't have been the same. But just watching your girls, hey, you know, Hannah, we're almost there. Hey, Katie, we're almost there. Hey, Sam, we're almost there. Just just another 30 yards, another 50 yards, another 60 yards. We'll be at the top, you know, and you get that in those groups. One-on-one, I'm kind of the cheerleader, the therapist, <laughs> the bartender. You know, as a guide, you wear many hats, but at the end of the day, it's it's all fun. Yeah, absolutely. That's one thing, like with Women of the Wild, we always try to be each other's cheerleaders out there, and we definitely encourage that on any of our hunts. So that was definitely something I was able to witness firsthand and be a part of, of that push, that drive of, you know, it's just a little bit further or like the don't look back, just keep pushing forward. And then just like enjoying and congratulating that moment of what you've all succeeded together to do. Um, It definitely, it it just builds something that you're not going to get sitting on the couch or meeting your friends at the bar or anything like that. Like the outdoors has its own. It's funny that you say therapist because it does, it does it has a different release to you where you might have those conversations and really get to know these people. I mean, shoot, you're sitting in the mountains with somebody for six days. You're going to get to know about their personal life a little bit. It wears you down to a breaking point where you, you have those conversations and you get into the, the personal aspect of someone's life quite a bit. Yeah. And that's boy, I've had some rough conversations with some clients. You know, one guy came out kind of on a whim. He messaged me, said, Hey, I want to come on a hunt. Let's, you know, and I told him, I said, let's go. We get out there and day two, he's talking about how him and his wife are going through all these problems and they're, they're looking at getting divorced and you know, it, it's rough. It's fun getting to know all these people, but to hear what they're going through and seeing that something that I'm offering is an escape for them for just a little bit. The biggest thing I hear is like, man, I'm just so glad there's no cell phone service. I'm tired of my phone always ringing. I'm tired of like the busy day-to-day life. This is so nice. Not even hearing a cell phone, a car, a fire truck. There's nothing out there. You're an hour and 20 minutes away from the closest town. And for these guys, for a lot of these clients, it's, it's therapy. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I remember that being one of the things that I had said, like, man, we just, it was nice not having service. It was nice. You know, you, even if you want to check your phone, it wouldn't have done you any good. So I can definitely relate to that, that it, it's just a, a self piece. And I think that for a self-preservation, it's needed every once in a while. So I could definitely see that. Yeah. And it's as much as it is for clients, it's a hard reset for me running around going hundred miles an hour. Most of the time, you know, it's, it's nice to get out there and go, it's quiet. This is nice. Yeah. I mean, the views, the mountains are beautiful. You'll never see stars unless you go like Alaska, Canada, Northern South Canada, Africa. South Africa. The the stars, the views, the you're in a whole different ecosystem that is not dependent on whether you're there or not. That stuff's happening if we're there, if we're not there. You know, we we're all so plugged into our phones and our day to day lives to go out there. And like you said earlier. There, there were days where it's just like, I miss the mountains. I'm going to leave. I'm checking out for a couple of days. Take off, take my tent, take my dog, go set up camp, check out for a couple of days. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's what you need to be able to be a better person whenever you get back to society, there's not a dang thing wrong with that. Yeah, no, not absolutely. It's 
it's definitely a much needed thing from time to time. And I, I would encourage anyone that hasn't gone on one of those types of hunts to get out there and try it. If that's your thing. Uh, I know we have plenty of people that that's not their thing and that's okay too. The hunting experience that, that Wicked 7 provides is definitely a backcountry, no amenities. Like you got to have the grit to do it. And um, I, th I think that's what adds to the whole experience is it's, it's not some ritzy hotel or, or lodging and there's not side-by-sides and, and for some people that might be their style of hunting and that's perfectly fine. But for the people that want the grit and the reward, that's the type of hunt that needs to happen to feel that success. Absolutely. So we're going to take a short break and hear from our sponsors, and then we will be back to dig more into Wicked 7 Outdoors with Austin Pressey. We will now be taking a short break to hear from our mid-segment sponsors. Share your love of the outdoors with your little ones through the exciting adventures in Dr. Josh Farr's children's books. As an avid sportsman, Dr. Josh Farr has taken his passion for the outdoors and uses his vivid storytelling to teach valuable lessons and appreciation of the world. Learn the alphabet through the ABCs of hunting. Find joy in exploring the outdoors with Let's Go Out and Play and more. You and your child will love learning about nature with Dr. Josh Farr. See all of his books now at drjoshfarr.com. That's D-R-J-O-S-H-F-A-R-R.com. Weeby Knives, a brand of skinning, fleshing, and butchering knives perfect for the hunters, trappers, and fishermen with a unique high-quality knife for animals of all shapes and sizes. You can find them and more information at WeebyKnives.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Stonehouse Digital Consulting, elevate your small business with Stonehouse's expert marketing solutions. Ignite your online presence and thrive with a tailored strategy to drive your growth. You can find them and more information at stonehousedigitalconsulting.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Livingston County Pheasants Forever, Chapter 465, with a mission to conserve pheasants, quail, and other wildlife through habitat improvements, public access, education, and conservation. You can contribute by joining the meetings on the first Thursday of every month at 7 p.m. at the Howell American Legion Hall on the corner of M59 and Grand River. For more information and to get involved, you can find them at pf465.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Dreamcatcher Charters, a Michigan-based guide service for walleye, sturgeon, and duck hunting. With a passion that drives their success, sharing the phenomenal Michigan waterways with everyone. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram. Feather Moon Outdoors, offering calls made from select materials. Every pot is fine-tuned in the house using the highest quality materials available. Also offering diaphragm, slate, glass, grunt calls, and more. For more information, you can find them at feathermooneoutdoors.com or on Facebook, Instagram. Stay tuned, more podcasts to come. All right, welcome back from our word from our sponsors. Big thank you to all of our sponsors who are contributing to us who have came back for a second year or who have you know done these trips with us and everything and we're here with wicked seven outdoors talking about the guide service about barberry sheep free range and backcountry hunts so we're going to resume back to that and i know we left off talking about just like the the solitude that you get in the mountains and everything like that and you know getting away from the hustle and bustle of it all I'd love to dig a little bit deeper into the sheep, the sheep themselves of like what, what it is you're looking for. Um, what, for those who don't know what like trophy sizes you're chasing and maybe just some cool little quirky facts about an odd ad. 
Yeah. So I'm going to get this number wrong. I always get it mixed up. But in 1957, 52 sheep were released around West Texas. They were brought in from the Barbary Coast in Africa, dropped off to see how things would handle those mountains. What we hunt is remnants of the original herd. They've since migrated all the way east of Del Rio up to the Texas Hill Country, Burville, Sonora, Junction, Ozona, uh, McCamey, and all the way up to Amarillo, well into New Mexico. Uh, there's been unconfirmed reports of a small population in Colorado. There's been some that have escaped game preserves or high fence ranches in states like Arizona and Oregon. So they're a very, they're a hardy animal. They can survive just about any climate, whether it's 120 degrees down to cold and frozen cold. We just had that one in Michigan that I had messaged you about that we, mm-hmm. and I was like, can they really sustain a Michigan winter? Because we had... On a page, I saw that somebody had shot one in Michigan at one of the game preserves, and you were the first person I contacted. I'm like, is that for real? Yep. They, they're prolific, and they're, they're borderline pandemic. God, it, it takes a pair of them to make 100 of them, and it's not like – I'm a little bitter about this one, but Texas Parks and Wildlife will fly some of our wildlife management areas and just mow them down to promote bighorn sheep population and growth because Audad bighorn sheep. They compete for the same food sources. So I guess in some corner of my brain, I think I'm helping the bighorn sheep, the desert bighorn sheep by killing guide and Audad. Uh, does it really put a dent in our numbers? No. We shot 30 last year. There was well over 200 born last year just on the ranch that I died on. You're, there's no way to take out the entire population, thankfully. It's just... Their reproduction rates fast. They come into rut late August, and it runs all the way through till November, kind of slows down and then picks back up January, February, a little bit into March, and then tapers off for the summer. Your ewes that didn't get bred at the first part are getting bred at the second part, and by the next year, most of those ewes are ready to start breeding. Typically takes two years, but it's not uncommon to see a one-year-old with a lamb. The other thing about Audad is if you take a mom out and she has a, a very young lamb, one of the other ewes will actually adopt that lamb. They, they're basically herd babysitters. Uh, you saw a little bit of that. You know, there'd be mm-hmm. one ewe with five or six babies. It's just the way they are. They're, they're very good at self-preservation and multiplying. I wouldn't say they multiply like rabbits, but they're, it's not uncommon to see doubles and triples out of a single ewe every year. So they're, they're just constantly replenishing their population. They are a high-altitude animal, which when I say high-altitude animal, it's not meaning like, oh, they're up 14, 15, 18,000 feet. No, they're, they're just at the top. They're at the highest point of whatever landmark they can get to. That's where they want to be because they know it's easier to go down than it is to run up away from a predator. Most of the time in the mornings, we're glassing from the bottom, looking at the tops, looking at the rims because they're, they've bedded up there. And it's not like, oh, this is a fluke thing. No, it's every day. 
you and I, we even went on a couple scouting missions, scouting trips out there where I was like, hey, just watch the tops. Sun hadn't come up yet. They're going to be on the tops. Every one of them was either at the top or just came off the top coming down to grace. Not saying that there's no food on the top, but they're going to work their way down to the bottom, cut around to the shade, make their way to the top by the evening. It's just where they want to be. Their, their eyesight is absolutely incredible. They see about like a pronghorn antelope does. It is very hard to get within a couple hundred yards of them, let alone pulling a Hannah and shooting one at 60 or 70 yards. Yeah, she pulled that one out of her hat, didn't she? I stood there in disbelief for a couple minutes over it. I was just like, this never happens. We'll take it, but this never happens. Yeah, um, bow range, free range, odd add. Yeah. And, I mean, that's that's a challenge in and of itself, right? Like, bow hunting and odd add out there. You've seen the area. I wouldn't know where to begin trying to bow hunt one out there. I mean, we got lucky. We got real lucky. We had uh, Hannah's that was pretty close, but then we also had that you that walked right up on us. And then we had, (laughs) I'll never forget that. We were taking the girls through the riverbed and right straight up above us at 25 yards, there is one staring us in the face. And I'm, you know, clicking my fingers trying to get somebody's attention because it's just, standing right there and I'm like if somebody's gonna shoot it shoot that one because <laughs> it was just there and it's funny because it's not an animal that you're gonna sneak up on it's not an animal that you're typically going to get in close range unless you're sitting in a blind waiting at a feeder or something like that you're probably not gonna get within bow range unless you got lady luck on your side and at that rate buy a lotto ticket and cash it in because that's, that's where your luck's sitting yeah it's to bow hunt those things. You'd almost have to sit just below where like the rock face and the mesa come together around one of the bends. You'd have to tuck up in some boulders and you'd have to sit there for two or three days and wait for wait for one to happen across in front of you. And hopefully it's a nice Ram. Hopefully it's a nice Ram and not a band of 50 U's. Not that there's anything wrong with that either. Those are just as much fun to shoot as the Rams. Um, and that's something that a lot of people that's something that a lot of people may not grasp is the ewes have horns too. It's they're not I don't know how to explain that real well. I take they're people out there and they're incredibly okay. regal, the females. Yes, absolutely regal. But I take people out there and they're like, Oh man, that's a giant ram. Oh, that's just your typical you hanging out at the top. Ram's somewhere near, but that's just a you. No, man, that's got to be a, a ram. I mean, if that's how you want your hunt to go, have at it, but that's a you. You know, that, what do you, that one that... What do you call ahead. that? Your What do you call it? Your $500 dirt check or something like that? Yeah, it's a $500 ground check. Ground check. That's what you call it. If it's a you, you pay $500. If it's a ram, congratulations. I was wrong. We're done early. No, we're done early. We're going home. That's... That's uh, one of those odd things that happens frequently out there. Last year, I had two guys. We pulled into camp 45 minutes, never got camp set up, never even took the tents out of the truck, pulled up to where camp is supposed to be, looked at the mountain and went, that's two rams. Both guys sling their rifles over their truck, their hood of their trucks, touch them off. We were done in 45 minutes back at the truck, and they're like, can we just go home? Sure. It's your hunt. We pack this thing up right now. I ain't got to unpack food. I don't have to unpack the 
tents, nothing. And we did. We packed everything, or we loaded their rams up into their coolers, and they drove all the way back to, I think it was Wyoming or somewhere, somewhere out west. And it was like, all right, cool. 24-hour road trip for a 45-minute hunt. Yeah, but, I mean, you you know where they're at. You're in a good location. Mm-hmm. And you had a couple of hunts where, like, especially when there's, like, two or three people – where like the first person gets it in the first couple hours of that first hunt, just like Hannah did. I mean, she, I think she shot hers. You probably know this better than I do, but it was probably like 11 o'clock. Yeah, around 11 very, o'clock in the morning. Yeah, very shortly after hitting the top of five, she was on her ram like within, what, 15 minutes? Oh, yeah. it From the front of five to the back side of five and into that, um, into the saddle. And that's where they were right. all hanging out. Right, but to get in there and get on a ram quickly can happen. And then you have other hunts where it might take you a couple of days. You're going to see them, but you might you might have that opportunity to be more selective of, you know, I don't that, you know, that one's 26, we're going to pass on that because I know there's 29s and 30s and plus back here. So with that being said, what is your is your your gentleman from Hawaii still holding your record of your biggest out there? So far, yeah. 34. 34 is, is the biggest ram shot out there, which is a spectacular ram. Um, so that's something I want to kind of dive into a little bit is trophy. I'll, some people don't even know, like for our listeners, who's like, I don't even know what the hell a barberry sheep is or an odd ad. Like, that's the same sheep. But can you dive into that a little bit of what people are looking for? Talk about their chaps, you know, horn size and and even like that curl, because I know that you're very specific on your your curl of what you look for. Mm-hmm. Do you want to dive into that a little bit? Oh, absolutely. So gauging Audad can be very difficult. There is not a whole lot of difference between a 27 and a 20, 29 inch ram. There's really not a whole lot of difference other than the two inches of extra horn down at the bottom. Where you start seeing the big jumps is that 29 or that 30 to 32, 34 to 36. And they very rarely get much bigger than that free range uh across the not really across the county but a few properties over last year they shot a 39 and 7 eighths which is just an absolute giant it i think it's still tied for number one in sci it's just an absolute giant of a sheep the last thing i want clients to do is to think they're going to come out on these free range hunt and bag a 30 34 to a 36 like it's you know like they're running around everywhere to shoot a 34 or 36 this is a shoot a 250 inch free range mule deer while it does happen it's not very common so what we target is 30 inch rams best way to tell them apart from a 29 from a 28 to 29 their horn will come down curve and start going parallel with the ground once he goes parallel with the ground you know he's at that 30 inch mark and everything past that is just bonus a 30 inch audad is like a 200 inch whitetail that's the best way I can equate trophy size. Now, as far as some clients, they don't necessarily care so much about horn length as they do chaps, which Audad, I would encourage everybody to Google them, to Google what an Audad is. It's spelled A-O-U-D-A-D. They've got a almost a beard that goes down their throat and then runs down both sides of their legs. They look like shower curtains. They're these long straight blondish colored hairs they're absolutely beautiful 
some guys, hey, man, I'm happy with a 28 as long as he's got great chaps. Cool. Let's find you a 30. If we can't find you a 30, we can settle on a 28, which is still the equivalent of a 180-inch whitetail. Some guys like horn length. Some guys like chaps. Some guys like big scarred-up faces. Some guys want those clean, pristine rams, which when you start getting into the big ones, you're not going to have those clean, pristine faces. They're going to be scarred up. They're going to be rutted up from fighting the entire rut. These rams are not, they're not just picking a fight here and there. They're fighting all day for four months out of the year. They're just trying to pick their groups of use apart from other rams and kind of show dominance. Like I said, some people like chaps, some people like horn links, some people like mass, and some people just like the unique characteristics. Um, unfortunately, the ram I was looking for that I wanted to shoot, I've seen him twice last year, once this year. Well, technically twice this year. Um, he had a broke off horn on one side. Saw him on the ranch twice last year. Saw him on the ranch once this year. Driving in with my second round of clients, I believe. Second or third round of clients. Found him dead on the highway 30 miles from the ranch. If that's not a testament to how much these things actually will roam, I don't know what is. I mean, there, there's next to no reason for him to come off of our property and travel 30 miles. And that's 30 miles like as the crow flies. There's no telling. He probably did 120 miles to get to where he was at. You know, that's that's just one of those things about those sheep. They're very nomadic. They uh they like to roam. Yeah. I mean, even talking about back to that patterning, that pattern that they do to go off property for 3 days and come back, that's a pretty pretty big loop. Um that I think Another awesome thing about those animals is the habitat that they're living in and what they're climbing, how you said they're at the tops. Like when you talk about mountains and you're out in Colorado and you're out in Wyoming, it's a gradual climb to those high elevations where within Texas, it is straight up. And I think that that's kind of a cool testament to those animals is how they're able to get from those rock beds to the tops up a straight, I mean, straight up cliff. And they can do it with ease. And I mean, they're just built like a freight train. There's no stopping them. They have their mindset on something they're, they're getting it. So I'm sure that like distance and, and everything like that is, is something that they can do with ease if they can climb a rock side like that, because it's intimidating looking at them in person on foot and you're out there, like you, you enjoy the beauty of it from a distance, but once you're in it, like it is suffering to its finest and watching those animals be able to overcome those obstacles that we look at and we're like, there's no, there's no way in hell I'm doing that. They go up it with ease. Like nothing ever happened. They need about a one inch, one square inch spot and they can stand on it with their hooves and their hooves are massive. They're three or four inches long by probably two and a half wide. They're, they're big hooves. What is so neat about their footing is that the bottom of their feet are, it's almost like a rubber, a rubber glove or a rubber sole on your boot. They're just super grippy, soft, and they will, they go straight up those sheer faces like it's not even there. And it takes them a matter of seconds to go from where they were to out of sight, which is amazing to watch. It's, it's a little soul crushing whenever one gets away, but it's, you sit there for a minute and you're just like, wow, he just really went up 30 feet of sheer cliff face within a couple seconds. 
yeah, it's insane to to watch those animals maneuver around those mountains. It's it's absolutely insane. And now to the final segment to this week's episode of Women of the Wild podcast. We will conclude this segment by thanking our closing sponsors. Stay tuned for more of this week's episode after this short word from our sponsors. Muzzy Pheasant Farms, a mid-Michigan family-owned and operated pheasant game preserve that is open year-round. Muzzy offers educational courses and hunts. They are family-oriented, creating a great opportunity for new and seasoned upland hunters. With no membership required, come hunt with Muzzy Pheasant Farms. You can find more information at muzzypheasantfarms.com or check them out on Facebook and Instagram. Blast and Cast Guide Service is a veteran-owned and operated Michigan-based guide service for the Great Lakes. With decades of experience of fishing and waterfowl, they ensure a safe and enjoyable trip every time. You can check them out at blastandcastguideservice.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Ultimate Veteran Adventures. UVA offers outdoor therapy, recreation, and camaraderie through hunting and fishing adventures around the country for veterans, active duty military, Gold Star families, and first responders. You can find them at Ultimate Veteran Adventures. You can find them at ultimateveteranadventures.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Sawmill Creek Bait and Lures, a husband and wife owned and operated company, the home of the C4, one of the best trapping canine lures on the market. You can find them at sawmillcreekbaitandlures.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Wicked 7 Outdoors, a Southwest Texas outfitter guide service with an exceptional care and quality of backcountry mountain hunts for free range audad. Also offering high fence and low fence exotics, come immerse yourself in the outdoor experience. You can find Wicked 7 Outdoors on Facebook and Instagram. Misguided Outdoors is a female-driven Michigan-based guide service offering turkey and waterfowl hunts. Misguided is focused on educating women and youth, providing a hands-on hunt experience for all ages. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram. We thank you for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy the rest of this episode. Now, one thing that I know that we're getting a little bit closer to the end of the podcast, but I know that there's a couple of questions that I like to ask on these, and one of the things that it's one of my favorite animals, which is why I'm going to bring this up, but you've actually got to guide some pretty neat animals outside of Audad as well. And you've done some low fence, some high fence, but one that's, you know, you're holding in your repertoire is a Marcor. Do you want to tell mm -hmm. us about that? Cause that's not something I'm sure many people have heard of. It's one of my bucket list animals. And I would just love to hear the story on that one. Oh, the Marcor. <laughs> I love them. Absolutely love them. They're not a very common species here. There's a handful of ranches that have them. And the ones that have them hold very tightly to them. They're not like your Black Hawaiians or your Texas Dolls or even your Snow Urials or any other type of Urial minus the Transcaspians. You can go shoot a Black Hawaiian, a Texas Doll, a Corsican, a Mouf... Eh, not necessarily Mouflon. But you can shoot like your common sheep in Texas for under two grand most of the time. Unless you start really getting up there and trophy class your urials you're looking at anywhere between four grand all the way up to five or six eight to ten these markor they're 500 an inch you're talking about a twenty thousand dollar animal in trophy class to be able to guide one of those was just never in my life did i think that i would have access to one and then whenever i finally had access to one it was just i couldn't believe it i, I thought i had reached the pinnacle of it unfortunately for me i can't claim that i've gained guided a free range markor he was on a high fence 
the client flew in, shot the animal. I caped and quartered, or I caped it out and then took it to my taxidermist who shipped it to his taxidermist. He jumped on a plane that same day and flew home. So it's not like, it's not like the Markor were in this giant expansive area, but still to lay hands on another one of the world's sheep. They're part of the Ovis Slam and SCI. To lay hands on another species for the Ovis Slam is just one of those really cool little feathers in my hat. They're absolutely beautiful. They're a corkscrew goat. Their horns go straight up and cur or swirl around kind of like a kudu does. But it's a lot tighter. It's a lot tighter of a twist. And they're mean as all get out. I've darted a few of them for transport to take to other ranches and stuff like that to help try to build a population. There's not many of them left in the wild either. So it's kind of cool to see like these Texas ranches taking something that's not not doing super well in its home environment and we're making them thrive here it's a conservation story is really what they are for sure yeah they're just they're incredible spectacular animals and uh i don't think it's it's one that many people i think any avid hunter especially in when you're into sheeps and goats and stuff like that is probably going to be one of your elite like bucket list hunts um I know that, you know, that was one of the first questions because my first hunt with you, gosh, that was a while ago, but we did that Ibex um, down in Rock Springs. And it's, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't some like Pakistani Ibex or anything like that. Like it's, it was an Ibex that was crossbred at its finest, but like, that was one of the main questions that I'd asked you about like getting into the Florida mountains and, and going for the Ibex or something like that, because those are the those are the hunts that I think for me, I enjoy. And I think it's due to the suffering. Like a lot of people think that I'm crazy, but they're entitled to that. Um, because I enjoy the suffering that comes with a hunt. And I feel like any sheep hunter, or like, if you're going after some of these free range exotics that are mountain animals, there's a lot of suffering that you're going to have to endure and you better enjoy it or your hunt's going to be miserable. For me, that's one of those animals that's like high up there because of what it is, how hard you're going to have to work to get it. And like with it being a high fence, it doesn't take away from the animal. It might take away from the experience, but what are, what are some of the experience levels aside from your audad hunts? that you've had or guided because I know you have a slew of exotics that you've guided um, as well as whitetail and mule deer because you you guide in Texas but you also have your New Mexico guide license so what are some of the other animals that have really resonated with you that you've guided and that one's tough um axes axes are tough just in general I mean they're they're super spooky they're afraid of their own shadows they're <laughs> native country they're used to being chased by tigers so if you want and I'm not saying on a five acre kill pin ranch, but go find you, if you're looking for like a true, like fun spot and stock hunt, go find you a ranch that's 500 to a thousand acres and go chase you an axis through the thick. Cause that's where they're going to be at. They don't right around dusk, they'll come out into the open, but most of the time they're off in the thickest part of the ranch, up in the cedars, up in the mesquites. Those hunts to me are, those are, they're just a lot of fun. I've guided Neil Guy, Fallow, Scimitar, Black Buck, Axis, Mule Deer, Whitetail, Audad, Marcor, Ibex, any type of ranch raised sheep or goat, everything from 
you know, like your Ibex to Catalinas, which are common in like Hawaii, but we have a lot of those here in Texas. Um, trying to think what else. Scimitar haven't guided an addicts yet. That's one like I've always wanted to guide, but just haven't had the opportunity yet. There's Buffalo. there's this oh god, Buffalo. <laughs> Buffalo, spot. Longhorn, Watusi. What was that? Said sore spot. Yeah, I don't like cleaning Buffalo. <laughs> god, they're so heavy. They're hindquarters. I'm, I'm for any of the listeners out there who have no idea who I am. I'm not a big guy. I am, I'm short and skinny like a beanpole. That's that's all there is to it. But a buffalo's hindquarter, just one of them weighs as much as I do. So to be trying to manipulate that carcass and cutting the meat off the bone or cutting the the hindquarters off, it's it's a chore. Um, it's not something I've ever mastered on my own. Thankfully, I've always had a helping hand nearby that could hold something for me while I'm skinning a buffalo out. Uh, Longhorn and Watusi have done those. Prairie yeah. dogs? Oh, yeah, prairie yeah, dogs. Kind of little, uh, little things, coyotes, bobcats. Coyotes, bobcats, prairie dogs, dove. And if any of the listeners out there, like if there's something you, that's on a bucket list that you want in Texas, there's a good chance that I've got a ranch that's got it. And if they don't have it, I know where to get it. Minus like your crazy stuff, right? Like I'm not going to go get a hippo or a rhino. That's you can't do that here. <laughs> No, they but, gotta call me for that. Yeah, they gotta call you. Uh, I don't play with the dangerous seven. One thing that you have done is you've kind of laid a lot of your hunting down to become a guide, right? Like, and I feel like that's that's a feat that most hunters fall into, right? Like you you come into hunting, you're gung ho, you're there to like you're there for the experience, but you're there to kill things, and then you fall into this next phase, which is like, I want to see other people enjoy this. Or I want to, you know, be photograph it. Like that's, that's one thing that has become a really big thing, especially recently is like, you have these phases, right? But a phase beyond that is when you become an outfitter or a guide and it goes beyond just like taking one of your buddies out that this is like a true passion that you've laid down the rifle or you've laid down the bow to help other people experience that. And I know like, that's one thing why you haven't do dove into any waterfowl guiding is because that's like your thing, that that's the one thing that you can still get out and go do to enjoy for yourself that you don't have to worry about clients. You don't have to worry about all of that, that you can do it, you know, as, as freely as you want to and keep enjoying it. Cause sometimes it's not that you don't enjoy it. You just enjoy it in a different way once you start guiding it. But what is aside from waterfowl? what is one of the, these hunts that you is like a bucket list for you that you got to do that's next on your list mm. for you, not guide. Right. As crazy as it sounds, shooting any one of the subspecies of bighorn sheep would be amazing. But I've been putting in for the Texas draw since I was 18. I'm 32 now. There's, there's next to no chance I'm going to draw that, right? 292,000 people put in last year. One person drew no success. And it's to no fault of their own. They're, it's just a tough hunt. I've almost fallen in love with these Audad to the point where, like, that's my next bucket list. Is it's I used to hate the thing because there's nothing poor about an Audad, but they used to call them like the poor man's sheep hunt. If you can't afford a $160,000 bighorn tag at the Nevada Sheep Show, your next best option to shoot a sheep is an Audad. If you want a true free range, very similar to a desert bighorn sheep hunt, it's Audad. So, yeah, that's. An Audad is very high on my list. The Ibex over in New Mexico, very high on the list. 
the free range Gemsbach in New Mexico. Again, both of those are draws, but they're high on the list. They're achievable draws, though. An elk, any anything out west, I think is gonna be is gonna rank pretty high on the list. Just because I've grown so accustomed to guiding in West Texas, and it's very similar, while it's still got its differences, it's very similar to hunting the western states. So I think just really throw me anywhere out west and give me a tag for something. I'll find a way to get it on the ground. And if not, I had a good time doing it. Yeah. You were talking about, you know, some of the sacrifices guides make. And yeah, we we don't get to hunt all the time. You know, well, I say that we're doing 90% of the hunting. The client's pulling a trigger and we're giving them a high five and a hell yeah. Congratulations, dude. Awesome shot. Way to go. But aside from that, like you sacrifice missing birthdays, holidays, all the things going on in regular life, because this is the only thing you want to do. There's a thousand things I could do to go make more money out there, but I'm not going to have as much fun as I am sheep hunting. My biggest, I don't know what to call it, pet peeve, I guess, is when somebody's like, oh man, it must be nice to do this for a living. Well, from the outside looking in, I'm sure it looks cool. From the inside looking out, I miss the hell out of my kids all the time. Like as a guide with two kids, like it's pretty rough. I don't get to see them all the time. I don't get to go hang out with them. I don't, I miss school functions. Um, you know, dads, dads and donuts or daddy daughter dances and stuff like that, because I've got a client that week. I can't make it. So be mindful. I guess this would be another one of those tips from a guide, right? When you're, when you hire a guide, be mindful of those types of things. Cause it does weigh on us. It's, it's hard. Uh, it's not as uh, easy and glamorous as everybody thinks it is. We run ourselves into the dirt. Not very often do we get any time to ourselves, any time with our families, and the time we do have. Most of the time I'm spending time with family, it's my phone's on do not disturb. Like, I don't want to answer the phone whenever I'm around my kids. may not always be the right decision, but my kids deserve that time, that quality time. Yeah, just be mindful of that with your guide because you never really know. You never know what the struggles we're going through as well as your struggles, right? Like, we don't know the client's struggle until they open it up very rarely will you get a guy that's like oh yeah man my my whole life's falling apart but i'm doing this and i'm enjoying it right yeah no i mean that's one thing when you hire a guy they're giving up everything to be there for that week that you're there that you've taken your vacation time for this is their job so this is something that they're stepping away from their normal everyday life and what i mean by that is their home life to come out there and provide this experience for you which is it kind of circles right back to don't guide your guide because you're there. You're there to get the job done to the best of your capabilities. It's not often that you find a guide that's just out there for a paycheck. They're out there to make sure that you get the best trophy that, you know, you've paid them for a job and let them do it. But also like that awareness of like, you want to get back home to your family too, whether that might be your kids, your personal life, whatever, to be able to have that time back with them the faster you get that tags out or the better of an experience that you provide to these clients, that's what you're looking to do every single time. And by having an easy client, that's like, Nope, let's get this done. We're doing it your way. That's how you're going to have the best success is listen to your guide. And that's in any situation. That's whether it's, you know, audad, whether it's exotics, whether it's waterfowl, upland, like it doesn't matter. Your guides live and breathe this and they do it by choice. Like you said, you could get another job that pays you differently. 
that could give you that nine to five and that stability to be home with your kids and everything like that. But you choose to do this because you love it, because of the conservation, because of the peace that it gives you in the outdoors. But it doesn't always mean that the schedule lines up with what you want it to. And sometimes you have to bend your schedule based on these clients and their schedules, which is why we sign up to do this, right? But Mm -hmm. to think that these these guides are, I can't drop the F-bomb, but we call it an F-off job. In in my life, that's what we call a guide life, um, is because you you have that outside perspective of like, you're just going off, out, you're hunting, you're having a great time all the time. But it isn't always that. Like, yes, you're out there having a great time, but look at everything you're sacrificing to do what you're doing. Exactly. We, we've kind of harped on the don't guide your guide deal, right? But if your house is on fire, you're not going to tell the fire department how to put the fire out, right? They're professionals. They know what they're doing. We're the same way. You may have hunted every big game or small game animal on the planet, except for one. That's why you hired us. Let us do our job. Absolutely. You know, as you talk about the tips from a guide, there is... One wavering thing that always comes up, and we see it a lot in Women of the Wild, and it's a lot of just naive, um, it's, you just don't know, right? So for the, the people that are out there listening, for anyone that's getting new into hunting or maybe has never gone with an outfitter, one of the biggest things that is talked about a lot that I think that there's such a wide range of the correct answer, but can we talk about tipping your guide oh the big t word i said it and it needs to be discussed oh 100 percent. so in this industry you have this might put me in some hot water and that's fine the bare minimum unless your guide is doing something that is going to get you killed at which point you should call your own hunt the bare minimum aside from that that you should be tipping a guide is between 15 and 20 percent of the total bill agreed most people are like, well, no, he's making all of his money on the animal. I don't need to tip. There's a lot of overhead in this industry and people don't realize it. I've got six to $7,000 in gear alone and I'm a one-man operation. That's just your gear. That's just my gear. <laughs> That's yeah. not the extra tents and the extra sleeping bags and binos and spotting scope. And that's just my gear. That's my, this. I'm going to the mountains. This is what I'm taking. If your guide does a just bang out, phenomenal job meets your expectations and exceeds them 30 to 50 percent there's going to be a we may burn the internet down with this one your guide did his job to the max you have absolutely zero complaints 30 to 50 percent if you if you can afford it and there's a caveat to that if you can't afford to tip your guide you probably should have done something a little different yeah, I saved mean, up, absolutely. Saved up another year or whatever, taking it out of your yeah. kids' college trust funds. I don't know, <laughs> but you know, there's, and it's not to say, that's not to say that we expect a tip every time. There are days where I've fallen short on my job. I don't expect a tip, but there are days where we go way above and beyond. So, for clients. and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna correct you right there. Um, that's one of my big, big pet peeves that you have actually just brought up is it's not expected. That's not true. It is absolutely expected for you to tip your guide. Unless you're in a situation where you and that guide completely butted heads and he did a terrible job or didn't, you know, whatever it may be, you don't feel that he earned it. There should still be a tip. It's his time. It's his effort. It's his gear or hers that that should 
like let's real talk for a minute that should be expected it should be expected and i know when i say there's such a wide range i agree with you it's no different than you going to a restaurant and you tip that waitress 20 percent um if she screwed up your order didn't bring your drinks was just mean as all get out you're not going to do the 20 percent. that's fine but if she did her job or exceeding, you're going to tip her that 20% or more and that it's expected. So in a guide's life, it is expected, even though we have this, you know, I've, I've heard many guides, like it's not, it's not expected. It's appreciated, but in all reality, it's expected in us with women of the wild. That's one thing that we try to educate our girls when they come out on is it is common courtesy to tip your guide 20% of the total cost of that hunt. Now, are there exceptions? Absolutely. In Africa, when we take uh, clients over there, that's one thing I tell people is, yes, your hunt is $4,000, but you should be tipping $100 to $150 a day for exceptional care and quality, which you, I promise, will get with any outfitter that you come on with us because we vet all of our outfitters. We vet lodging. Um, You know, when we came with you or when we went out to Nebraska with Mike or, you know, over to Rhino land in South Africa with them, like there is an expectation of tipping. Maybe the guy doesn't have it, but they're going to damn sure appreciate it. But I think that it is something that as hunters coming out with guides, you should have that in the back of your mind as part of your total cost of your hunt is you should be tipping 20% of the total cost of that hunt. If your guy did their job exceptionally well, it exceeds that 20% without a doubt. Are there exceptions to that rule? Absolutely. But it should be something that it's not a, a shunned conversation or like you said, burn the internet down. It shouldn't be that. This this way of life, and and somebody might harp on me for this and that's perfectly fine, but it is a something that I stand behind big time is I've seen so many guides not get tipped when they worked their butts off. And it drives me crazy to see these people. Cause like you said, there's overhead in that hunt. The hunt cost does not include that, that money, that paycheck back to that guy. Like, are they getting paid for it? For sure. But there's, there could be animal costs. There could be leasing fees for land. There's gear, there's gas for scouting. Like it goes so above above and beyond what the normal day-to-day person probably thinks of when they book a hunt. Mm -hmm. So I think that's, that's why I wanted to stop you and correct you there because while you say it's not expected, it should be. And you're hundred percent correct there. And back to the whole wear and tear on the trucks, the gas, the scouting on a goose hunt, right? It may take somebody two hours to limit out. It may take them 15 minutes, but I guarantee you there's over 50 hours into making that hunt what it was or more from your guide because they're the ones like you said driving around scouting fields for me it's going out to the mountains it's five hours from the house to the mountains it's not a free tank of gas you know god i wish i could find a free gas station somewhere teleportation i'm telling you i'm telling you if amazon would hurry up with that order on all that stuff would be all right but there there is a lot of overhead in it there's there's so much wear and tear on your vehicle during during the hottest part of sheep hunt, and I'm not talking hottest as in weather wise, but like when the sheep are just getting it, and I'm running from Midland to the ranch, from San Antonio to the ranch, every three to four days, you're talking an oil change every six to seven days at eighty to a hundred dollars an oil change. 
not to mention the wear and tear on that truck from those mountains. So that's something that when you're going to these extreme conditions, the wear and tear on struts, on brakes, like all of that, like that's a real thing that depending on, I mean, I don't have room to talk. My fields are real easy to check. Um, I drive them almost every single day and it's not a lot of wear and tear. I mean, it's a lot of dirt roads, which is a lot of bumping and rattling, but the extent of like scouting from a guide as yourself, your vehicle is taking a beating. Oh, absolutely. I mean, just the incline on some of those mountains that you have to go through to get to the hunting spot. Like I said, brake struts. I mean, there's so much more than just oil change and tires. A hundred percent. You know, you roll that over the course of your entire season. You just kind of have to roll that into, okay, every hunt's going to cost, cost me about a thousand dollars. It's just what it is throughout the season. You know, every, there's a cost associated with everything we do. And it's not, it's not always things you want to fix, but in order to make it to pick up that next client from the airport, it's got to be fixed in between hunts and you might only have a day to get it fixed. Which you sometimes have to pay more for to get things expedited or fixed quickly or so that's all part of it too, of, of all of that. And that hunt cost of, you know, groceries, gasoline, all of that included. So just for the listeners that are out there who maybe haven't booked with a guide yet or are newer to it, be mindful of those things. Um, be mindful that a guide has a personal life too. They're allowed to have bad days. And at the end of the day, you can't control a wild animal. So if you want a free range hunt and, and not just free range, any fair chase, whether that's upland, whether that's waterfowl, whether that's an odd ad sheep, like you cannot, your guide cannot control those animals. It doesn't matter if you're on an elk hunt, like it is possible not to see something when you're out there experiencing the mountains down in Southwest, Southwest Texas. I don't know that there was a day that we didn't see sheep. So I can't say that for your guide service because you're pretty spot on with a hundred percent shot opportunity. There wasn't a day that we were down there for the six, seven days that our girls didn't see sheep, but like waterfowl hunters, you pay a guide to take you out and you might not see geese or you might not see ducks. That's sometimes how the cookie crumbles. Like you can pattern them to the best of your capabilities, but you don't know. I know like turkey hunting this year, we saw birds every time we went out and I had it, you know, queued down to within that 10, 15 minute window. But there's always a chance a predator came in that night and pushed them out or pushed them to a different patterning position. And there's no way to ever predict things like that. So one thing that I'm not sure that you've experienced, but as a guide, I'm sure at some point in time, maybe not with the audience, but with something else. That's something that people should be aware of too, is you can't always make it happen. These aren't caged animals. This isn't in some small fence. Like you kind of have to deal with what you got sometimes. And it's not always right in front of you. Yeah, Unless you're tying them to a tree. Yeah. Or a boulder. <laughs> uh, yeah. You can't, you can do all of your quote unquote homework. You can do everything right if the animals or the weather aren't cooperating it may not happen you see that a lot with you know fishing charters man they might be just slaying fish monday through friday just client month you know group of clients monday tuesday wednesday thursday friday sat saturday rolls around it's your trip fish have moved out it's not your guide's fault hell it's not even the fish's fault or the weather's fault like it's just they just go where they want to and as guides we try to make the best of those situations by like Hey, you know, 
we can sit here and glass for a little bit, but I really, really think we should go over here. You know, I got a feeling that they're going to move over here. Or, you know, you you find some way to have fun with your clients the whole time. Because at the end of the day, not only are we guides, we're entertainers as well. So that's, your guide can't control the weather or the animals. And that's just, that's what it is. Well, I know, I know this year you had a client recently that you had actually messaged me because I'm on your inReach, but you had messaged me about the pressure. Like that's something that I don't think a lot of people think about, but that's something that's in your logbook that you look at. Um, so do you want to talk about that a little bit of what you do or how that can affect the animals? Oh, <laughs> we're, we're going to burn the internet down. It's just how that's going to happen today. <laughs> um, there's no definitive, like hundred percent, this pressure to this pressure, the animals are going to be there. Right. But if you watch their patterns and keep an eye, just for fun, any, anybody out there that hunts next time you shoot an animal, harvest an animal, get on your phone real quick, look at your weather app, figure out what the barometric pressure is and just write it down in your notes on your phone and keep doing that every time you harvest something you'll start to see trends in all of it it's call it a conspiracy call it whatever you want my sheep I at give, 29 what's that i'm not giving away all your secrets here no i don't care they're they're probably not that big of a secret and if they are a secret people aren't doing their homework my sheep i say they're my sheep like i've got any ownership over those sheep out there i've noticed in the last two years, 28, no, sorry. Yeah, 28.9 and below, or 29, 28.8 and below are the least productive sheep days for me. Where I start really seeing a lot of sheep movement is at 29.5 to 30, 30.9, 31.2, somewhere in that range. That's where I see the most amount of sheep. Above that, it tapers off again. Do you still see animals in those high and low pressures? Yes. As many? Sometimes no. So that's, and I don't know why I've started keeping track of that. Like, it's not something that matters, you know, in, in the grand scheme of things, right? Like, if the sheep are there, they're there. But it's fun to figure out like does this really have that big of an effect on what i'm seeing today and most of the time the answer is yes well i know that you had brought it up um with one of the fishing charters that we know mutual friend um that you had brought it up with them if they've ever looked into that of the barometric pressures with fishing and i, yeah. I think that it is one of those i think it's one of those calculations that many people overlook and like you said, you could be on them one day, not the next, but something like that might be that little secret to put in your tool belt for when you're out there, mark it on your Onyx, put it in your pin, but that might be just a better way for you to log what's happening with these animals and get inside their head. Like we had talked about with patterning to kind of live and breathe where they're at is maybe learning things like that. And it could be different. I mean, it could be different a mile away from you to where you are now or, you know, state to state, all of those pressures could vary, but it is, I think it is one of those things that you could tuck away in your tool belt and utilize. Absolutely. You know, somebody that hunts five days out of the year, maybe 10, it's not going to matter as much to those people. You know, you're, 
your guy that gets out opening day a duck or goose, he gets out three or four times during whitetail season, and he might do a closing duck hunt at the end of winter. May not matter that much to him. He's out there for the pure enjoyment of whatever happens, happens. For people who do this for a living, we look at every little thing. Did a five-degree temperature change between last night and this morning make a difference? Did the cloud cover versus full blast sun make a difference? Is it drizzling? Is it snowing? Is it raining? Is it windy? Do those things make a difference? And a lot of times, if you start keeping records, you'll notice, hey, on super high windy days, didn't see anything on those light five to 10 mile an hour breezes. We saw 80 sheep and it was slight overcast and 52 degrees. Barometric pressure was 29.9. Well, those things just start adding up and you start really looking into it. And just as somebody that does this for a living, that's, that's my thoughts on it. Is it, it, to me, it absolutely makes a difference. Yeah, absolutely. I think anything that you can do to contribute to your homework uh, is worthwhile. So that's a really great tip to any of the listeners out there that maybe you're, you know, just getting into whitetail and you want to start, you know, getting more into it and you want to start logging things like that. Like, like you said, like log it in your phone, log it in Onyx, keep a book, log those things, whether there's overcast, whether it's sunny, whether it's windy, you know, what that pressure is. And every time you, you don't have to harvest it, but every time you see them log stuff like that, and then you're going to find that the animals in your area are going to hit a specific pattern with weather. They're going to hit it demographically. So following that pattern of what they're traveling on foot, by wing, whatever that may be. But those are just some little, like I said, things to put in your tool belt for if this is something that you're digging into and you want to dig heels into, it's a really great way to start. And another, kind of another one of those tips from a guide. Okay, if you're booking a, let's say you're booking a high fence hunt and it's at a top tier ranch here in Texas. For all the listeners, you're going to have to pardon me. Texas is what I talk about because it's what I know. I'm not going to go talk about, you know, the high fence ranches in Missouri or Illinois or everything's a little different out there. But what I do know is Texas ranches. If you're going to book a hunt out of Texas ranch or anywhere, ask your liaison, your guide, the outfitter, whoever it is that you're in contact with. Say, hey, man, shoot me over a gear list. Let me know what I need to bring. Let me know what I can bring for you. Um, if there's anything you need, just let me know. You know, and as guides, most of the time, we're not going to ask you to bring us a $7,000 pair of binos, right? It might be, in Felicia's case, you know, her guys over in South Africa, hey, you know, <laughs> could you grab us a couple logs of chew? It's 20, 30, 40 bucks. It's not, you know, for those guys, they can't necessarily get those products over there. It's nothing to throw a couple logs in your bag and take them with you, right? But make sure that you are prepared for whatever style of hunting you're doing, whether it's sitting in a blind. Are you sitting in a blind in August down here or are you sitting in a blind in January? Those two months make a massive difference on what you're going to wear. August, I'm sitting in a blind in a t-shirt and shorts. In January, I'm in full bibs and overalls because it's, it's just cold and I don't necessarily care for the cold that much. You just want to make sure that you are the best prepared that you can be going into your own hunt. It's not only going to make your life easier, it's going to make the staff at the ranch's life easier as well. 
the more prepared you are, the better time you're going to have, as opposed to, oh man, I didn't know that I needed to bring a pair of snake boots in August. Like if you're in Texas, it's, there's a good chance you're going to see rattlesnakes in August. You know, oh man, I didn't realize that it was going to be 40, 30 to 40 degrees whenever I booked this hunt. All I brought was a t-shirt and a pair of pants. Oh, you're going to be cold sitting in your blind and you're not going to enjoy that very much. So one of the big things in line of all of that though, is like, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't feel like there's a stupid question. Um, it's, it's really easy to overlook something. And as somebody seasoned in hunting or guiding, it's really easy. And I didn't learn that until I started women of the wild of how easy it is to overlook some of the most simple things that I've actually taken notes and added that when like these girls ask questions that sometimes they feel are stupid questions. It's not a stupid question. If you feel the need to ask it, it's because you didn't know. And I want to answer that for you. Any guide out there, male, female, doesn't matter. They want to answer those questions because they want their hunter to feel the most comfortable. They want them to have the right equipment. They want them to have everything that they need, right? So we have waterfowl hunts coming up and like a big question is going to be about chokes and about uh, shot size and everything like that. So that's all stuff that's in our book to have that conversation before it's even asked. Sometimes we have girls who are a bit quicker on the step than we are. And they ask, you know, what, what shot size do I need? And then we can address it. But those are things that if you have the question, ask your guide. Um, if you're booking here with women of the wild, ask our staff. We have PRs for that for a reason. Um, they're seasoned in what we're having them PR. We typically don't throw a PR on an event unless it's something that we absolutely have to, that they have, they're not super experienced in. And then they're getting an education before they go. So in any circumstance of what you're doing for any listeners out there, like make sure you're doing your homework, make sure that you're doing your homework on what you need, your gear, the animal itself, um, I know we've had that in the past of people not understanding the animal that they're booking for and didn't realize that they're that hard to hunt or that they're that dangerous or, you know, whatever it may be, know that you need to do your research and that's expected. When you come to hunt with a guide, the fact that you are coming with at least a little bit of knowledge is expected. Uh, don't go into something blind. That's not fair to you. That's not fair to your outfitter. And it can lead to unsafe situations. So do your homework. Absolutely. And that's at the end of the day, we're as an out guide and an outfitter. Yes. We're here to make sure that you have a great hunt successful or not by the world standards of success. To me, anytime that you go out on a hunt and you have a good time, it's a success, whether you are coming home with an animal or not. But at the end of the day, our biggest chore is to make sure everybody gets back to the back to camp or the lodge or the airbnb or whatever sleeping situations you're having that day our biggest chore is to make sure that you get back home to your family safely if you don't the hunt was a complete fail yes can't agree with that more well sir do you have any final thoughts or you want to throw in where people can find Wicked 7 Outdoors? Oh, final thought. I hope everybody has a good hunting season. I hope everybody has a good holiday. You know, the holidays are coming up. I hope everybody has fun, stays safe. I hope everybody shoots their target buck, doe, ram, whatever it is you're chasing. I, I just hope everybody's successful and, and, safe. Uh, and safe. 
yeah, if if you guys want to get in touch with me, you find me uh, almost all social media platforms. It's just Wicked Seven Outdoors. Um, Facebook, YouTube, uh, Instagram. I think that's all of them. TikTok. Oh yeah, TikTok. Forget about that one occasionally. Reach out, and even if you're not booking a hunt with me and you have questions, I'm not. I'm going to say this as well. I'm not the world's foremost leading expert in all that. I'm learning about them every day. But if you have a question, reach out and message me. Just reach out and message me if you want to know anything about hunting in Texas, Audad, anything like that. Felicia, she's, you know, a lot about these sheep and, you know, she's, she's right up there with me on, on knowledge on them. She's, she dove head first into them whenever they came down, whenever y'all came down in, uh, in March. So reach out to any one of us. We'd be happy to answer any questions you guys have about anything. You know, obviously I'm not going to tell you how to change your kid's diaper because I haven't done that in four years, but yeah, just reach out, ask questions. And there's a good chance that if you're hunting with a group of people, if you have a question, somebody else in your group is wondering the same thing you are. So don't be afraid to ask. Absolutely. Well, it's been great talking to you. Yes, ma'am. And I know you, you have uh, an event that you're getting ready to go to with your kids. So I'm going to let you get to that. Alrighty. We'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Absolutely. Appreciate having you on.